Well, downstairs and in the back, everybody's getting ready for the... Oh, there they are, the graduation service at 7 o'clock for our Bible school, so all the students are getting gowned up. That's why I'm uh, getting on to the platform a bit earlier today, and um, we'll be finishing around 6 o'clock so that we can have the photos with the students and prepare for this evening. But it's good to see you here as we are studying the Sermon on the Mount together. And uh, this is probably the greatest sermon that was, has ever been preached. And it was preached by our Savior, Jesus. And when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I like to remind us, because sometimes, you know, you, you can come to all of these, some of these, one of these, and you'll still get something, even though it is a series. And remember that you can go online and on the media, and all the teachings right from the beginning with the Beatitudes of Sermon on the Mount are all there up on the web for you so you don't need to miss anything and uh, the Sermon on the Mount is what R.T. Kendall calls Jesus's teaching on the Holy Spirit so R.T. looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says this is the teaching Jesus's doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, we also know that um, the Sermon on the Mount is not for outside the church. The Sermon on the Mount, if it's the doctrine of the Spirit, as R.T. Kendall calls it, it means that you have to be of the Spirit to live this. This isn't a new moral law for everybody. We'll be looking today at an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and, and turn the other cheek. And, and these remarks, many of the remarks that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount are well known outside the church, but they're not for people outside the church. It's not moralism, but this is spirit-filled living. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Until you know your need of God and your reliance on God, then the Sermon on the Mount has absolutely nothing to benefit you. And the Sermon on the Mount, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, is simply an explanation of how the Beatitudes should be lived in concrete examples. So the introduction to the sermon is the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are the pure, they shall see God. These, this type of the spirit, this is the characteristic of a spirit-filled Christian. And the rest of the sermon is Jesus like saying, Ah, oh, well I've given you the Beatitudes... But let me tell you how somebody who has the spirit-filled characteristics of the Beatitudes, let me show you how in daily life and concrete circumstances you live the spirit-filled life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was R.T. Kendall's mentor, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he says that the Sermon on the Mount is simply an explanation of Jesus' great command that we should love one another as he loved us. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, the, that, that when Jesus gave us that command, love, the Sermon on the Mount, explains how we love, the characteristics of love, and also how love for God and love for one another, how it actually uh, takes place in daily life and daily living. So that, that's the sort of background that we have. You can't go and just pluck things out of context in the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's like when you, a preacher preaches a sermon, he wants everything he says to be known in the context of the sermon. And I'm sure that in any sermon, you could pull some statement right out of its context and make it sound like something else. And many times with the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I wonder if you've ever studied the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon. Maybe this is the first time that you're thinking about it. Uh, m many Christians, they just quote a scripture here, a scripture there, out of context, and they don't really understand what's taking place. Well, we find ourselves... Um, oh, let me actually tell you a few of the resources that we, we have for you on the Sermon on the Mount. I like to do that. Uh, the first one is our own senior minister, Colin Dye's book, The Rule of God, part of the Sword of the Spirit series. And this Rule of God focuses on the Sermon on the Mount. It's very readable um, and, and, and easy to master. And then also R.T. Kendall's coming uh, to be with us this summer. And uh, he last year... Uh, wrote uh, a new book on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's excellent. Colin uh, puts in a, a word in, in the front of it. The Sermon on the Mount by Artie Kendall. A bit thicker, as you can see, but a, an excellent read. And also, I haven't mentioned this one, but John Stott, great Anglican theologian and minister, uh, he has the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's a bit thinner. And so these things are worth having if you really want to study about the Sermon on the Mount. Well, if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. Now, where are we at the moment in the Sermon? Well, we have looked at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who have been persecuted. That is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is telling you how this spirit-filled Christian described in the Beatitudes would live his life. We then have come to a, a portion... In, in scripture that um, really is explaining what Jesus is talking about in verse, chapter 5 verse 20 where he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus shocked the people by saying that they had to have a righteousness that was greater than the very Pharisees and scribes and doctors of laws. I mean the professional religious ministers of that time. And, and the common people thought, well how is it possible to have a righteousness that exceeds those of the Pharisees? Well, uh, 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 Jesus then describes the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of the spirit-filled believer. He compares them. He talks, he, he, he looks at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, have the righteousness of the law. Now, remember that the righteousness of the law is external. It deals with external actions. It doesn't deal with the heart. And the righteousness that Jesus is speaking about is a righteousness that comes from the heart. It's God's Holy Spirit working on the inside. So the Pharisees, so he, Jesus gives six statements to show how the Spirit-filled believer will live in a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And he does this by looking at the law. He says, you have heard it say that thou shalt not kill. But then he says, but if you've got hatred 
in your heart you've broken that law you see the Pharisees uh, they weren't killing anybody they knew that was breaking the law but inside their heart they were whitewashed tombs on the outside they looked lovely and holy but on the inside they were dead men bones Jesus said and they they were hating they, they were they were not dealing with the heart issue Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, if, if you look at a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you've already committed it. Again, we looked at how the Pharisees obeyed the letter of the law, but on the inside, they were as lustful as anybody else. Thou shalt not... Uh, then Jesus spoke about the, the Pharisees and divorce, and the Pharisees and oaths. Now we're coming to verse 38. Remember, this is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness of the law. These are examples and teachings on how a spirit-filled Christian deals with the things that they face. And these are principles, illustrations, and examples of how a spirit-filled Christian lives. It's not a new law. These are not new laws that we just obey externally. These are examples of the kind of situations we may find ourselves in and how we will respond to them. So let, let's have a look at this. Verse 38 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek... Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. John Stott, I mentioned the Anglican minister who, who wrote this book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we are coming in this passage that I've just read to you to the highest point in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a picture, remember we've said that the Sermon on the Mount is an illustration of how to fulfill Jesus' command to love. It is the doctrine of the Spirit-filled believer. And Jesus is here now dealing with how we deal with those around us and he starts with this statement you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth I don't think I need to go into the Old Testament but if you're just picking this up you might want to know that that's from Exodus chapter 21 verse 24 Leviticus 24 verse 20 and Deuteronomy 19 verse 21 an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth again it's the Mosaic law now what was the teaching of the Mosaic law on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, why was it given? Well, remember that the law came to do two things. The law came to reveal sin, to show sin up in all its sinfulness. Uh, Artie Kendall says that the law called sin by name. And so the law showed sin, but also, secondly, the law came to restrain sin. The law came to the, the wicked generation in the, in the wilderness, the Moses generation, who refused to live 
as their forefathers had for 340 years since Abraham, without the law and simply following the promises of God for their lives and trusting in him. They refused their specific generational promise, which was the promised land. They refused to believe God. In the wilderness, we know they tried and tested God, um, that they never believed him. And in the end, God said, that's enough. I'm tired of this generation. You shall not inherit the promises. And they were given the law. Remember that if you want to have an illustration of what the law is, the law, Paul tells us in Galatians, is like a teacher, a tutor. A teacher that comes into a badly behaved class. And that's what the children of Israel was like. They were messing around and the teacher comes in and says, Right, I'm not having any more messing around in this class. Up on the whiteboard behind, I have written the rules of this class. If you obey these rules, it will go well with you. If you disobey these rules, you will be punished. And someone jumps up and laughs and says, well, we'll do what we want in this class, sir. Detention, five days. Somebody else makes a rude comment. Suspended, one week. And the law comes and brings order to an unruly group of people. So when we come to this, excuse me, this passage of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what, what, what was that purpose? Well, the purpose there was to bring control and to prevent the excesses in Israelite society of revenge, anger, retaliation, and retribution. An eye for an eye, uh, a tooth for a tooth. If you didn't have that law, then people could take revenge, retaliation, totally out of proportion. You know, you, you, you could do something minor to someone's son or daughter and they could like turn up with, with, with every member of the family and destroy your whole family. I mean, how do you respond to these situations? And the law came to prevent excesses in revenge killings, angers, retribution and retaliation. It said, look, there's got to be a balance here. You know, if, if someone pokes your eye out, you can't cut their head off. That's not a proportionate, just thing to do. And this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it wasn't just that people would live that personally and make up their own law and say, well, you did this to me, so I'll do it back. No, the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that was for the judges to administrate. Okay? So this was a, this was a law for, for the civil society of Israel. So you didn't decide what an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth was. It, it would be like us just being judges in London and, and, and being you know, policemen and judges and executioners. No, they had special judges who would look at a situation that came their way and be able to say what is an appropriate response. An eye for an eye principle, a tooth for a tooth. You know, we still see that today in Sharia law. Do you know that? They have a, the same principle in places like Saudi Arabia. They still practice where sometimes the defendant is allowed to exact from the person whatever they did to them or their families. They, they, they can give it back. So if, if somebody maimed a member of their family, uh, in Sharia law, they have the right to maim the person back. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, by the time that Jesus came around, not everybody was, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
What, was, what would often happen is when somebody was wrong, the judges, using the principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, wouldn't necessarily say, well, you cut his hand off, so you, uh, he cut your hand off, you can cut his. Very often there would be some sort of like recompense financially, something that would recognize that, that retribution or uh, 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 restoration needed to be done. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, remember, he's speaking against the righteousness of the Pharisees. So in these, these six statements that he uses, having spoken about the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, we do look and see, well, how are the Pharisees abusing this? How are they abusing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, what was happening at the time was they were not just allowing this to be a principle of law for society, civil society, but the Pharisees were now using this principle in their personal relationships and dealings with one another. Okay? It wasn't just a legal thing dealt with in the courts, but the Pharisees were using this principle, well, you are nasty to me, I'll be nasty to you. You wrote me a rotten email, I'll write you a rotten email back. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you were rude to me in public, I'll be rude to you in public. It was that sort of principle. And, and they were using this and abusing this, uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, for all manner of unrighteousness. It was an external thing. Oh well, you owe me this. I want my pound of flesh. And so Jesus was speaking against, again, the outward righteousness of the Pharisees who would go around saying, well, we follow the law of Moses in our relationships. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, you slap me, I'll slap you back. Uh, you make fun of me, I'll make fun of you back. You do something to me, you'll get it back. Uh, so you, you better be careful. This is how they were operating this. But Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' bold statement, this is a powerful statement, is, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Which is a powerful statement. But what does that mean, do not resist an evil person? Well, Jesus gives us four examples of what this means, not to resist. He gives us the, the example of being slapped on the cheek, number one. He gives us the second example of someone suing you for your shirt. He gives a third example of someone forcing you to go one mile. And he gives the fourth example of somebody who asks you uh, for money or wants to borrow from you. These are four examples of a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And he is saying, look, I don't want you to be a, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth person. And here's the type of person that I want you to be in regard to when someone slaps you, in regard to uh, when someone sues you, in regard to um, if someone makes you, forces you to, to walk a mile, in regard to somebody who asks you, for a loan. Now remember, these aren't four new laws. You know, we, when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at the spirit, not the letter. So if you take these as, ah, four new laws, and we'll see this is where people get mixed up. That means that literally, 
If someone slaps me on one side, I must literally obey the new law from Jesus and turn and let them slap... Oops, sorry. <laughs> Forgot that was there. Slap them on the other side. If someone comes and sues me for my shirt, I must give them my coat. This isn't a new law. Remember, what are these? These are examples, illustrations. It's Jesus saying, this is the sort of situation you may find yourself in. And if you are in this situation, this is the spirit-filled beatitude life that I would expect. This is, this is what a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisee and the law would look like. And so it's important for us to understand these. These are not mechanical laws, but examples. We can take the example and apply it to all sorts of situations that we might find ourselves in today. The, first, the next thing I want to mention is this phrase, do not resist an evil person. Uh, sometimes Christians have looked at that phrase and said, ah, you see, this is the doctrine of pacifism. In other words, that Christians uh, should not be involved in any kind of physical force, any kind of violence at all, in any way, ever. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. And some people are, right, have taken this to an extreme. You may have, anybody heard of the great author Leo Tolstoy? Great Christian author, wrote some great plays. Well, when he read the Sermon on the Mountain, read this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for for a tooth, don't do that, but do not resist the evil person. He took it absolutely in its most literal form possible, and he said this. He says, you must not defend yourself at all in any way, shape, or form. And that means that, that Jesus is teaching here that the police force is wrong. Not, you, not just a Christian shouldn't be a policeman, because you might have to. You know, can you imagine if a policeman's there and gets attacked and gives... Gives you the other cheek. Well, Tolstoy said that no, that the police force, the armed forces, all these sort of things, that they're wrong. Jesus is speaking against these. So if somebody attacks you, you must not in any way defend yourself. People also use this as a passage um, that Christians should not be involved in the armed forces and that no war, even a war of defense, is justified at all. All because Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. So if we were in the Second World War, we're starting all over again, the pacifist would go to this passage and say, you know, we can't, we can't defend ourselves against the Nazi forces. We shouldn't defend ourselves. We, we, it's against what Jesus taught us. Well, that's taking this scripture too legalistically. Remember what I'm saying? We're not replacing uh, uh, the old law with a new law, but with principles and examples. And so in context, what are we talking about here? Well, Tolstoy got mixed up because Jesus is dealing here with the principle in our personal relationships. Okay? Now, we, we know that Jesus understands that there are two institutions two God-given institutions in the world. Can you tell me what those two God-given institutions are? Pardon? Uh, well, th that's true marriage, but two major institutions. Church, government, state. Let's go to, you're correct, but I was looking for church and state. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 13. Because we need, we need to see what Jesus is not 
talking about. You, you see, if you take it out of context, this is what I mean about taking something out of context. You just pull that out and just put it in a vacuum. Do not resist the evil man. Full stop. And then you, you come to where Tolstoy was. But let's have a look at Romans chapter 13. Speaking about government. Romans 13 verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and which, those, and which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, will have, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So here we go. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no authority, fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be, sub be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, for because of this you also pay taxes for rulers uh, are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. So you can see there that God has given us government and that in government the sort of principle eye for eye, uh, tooth for tooth, this type of view, it, there is a resistance. The police force, the, now you can have good governments and bad governments, you can have obedient governments that... that you know, on bad police forces, but the principle is that the police force, the armed forces, they are given by God in order to deal with restraint, to resist the evil. And so it's possible to be a Christian in the armed forces. It's possible to be a Christian in the policemen. We've got policemen and people in the armed forces that come, that come here. Um, but we are talking about our personal relationships here when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. What does he mean by that? Well, turning the other cheek was, uh, when someone slapped you, it's not just a picture of someone coming up and punching you on the face. It's not just a picture of that. It's got a little bit more to that because Jesus is referring, the slap across the face was not just a personal injury, but it was a personal injury insult and still in many places well it's an insult if anybody slaps you on the face you don't you know it's like, oh thank you do you but in many places especially in areas of the middle east the slap across the face it, it might not be a hard slap but what's more important about that slap is that it is an insult it is a way to insult somebody and um, in those days too the slap around the face was a personal insult we think of Jesus, he was uh, slapped around the face. I mean, in John chapter 18, it's a good illustration of this. John chapter 18, verse 22. Gospel of John. Let me just read this. John 18, 22, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, sorry, in, fr in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. When he had said this, this is Jesus, when Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus, saying, is that any way to answer the high priest? 
Jesus, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So there is the insult and the slap. And does Jesus turn the other cheek? No, he doesn't. But does he strike back? No. But he does defend himself, doesn't he? He gets slapped around the face and says, Wait a second. That's an insult, and why did you do that? If I've said something wrong, uh, then tell me what it is that you, sh you should have slapped my face. But if I've spoken right, then you are out of order. So this isn't some sort of doormat, is it? Where you just, you know, you just slap your face, oh, thanks, would you like another one? <laughs> but the principle here is that Jesus did not retaliate. And this is the big overriding principle here, the, the, the doctrine of non-retaliation. Not taking revenge. Jesus didn't take revenge. He didn't retaliate. But he did say, you know, that was out of order. That's not just. That's not right. It also reminds me, I won't turn to it, but in Acts chapter 16, verse 37, Acts chapter 16, verse 37, we find that Paul is in prison in Philippi. And they find out that he's a Roman citizen. And they say, okay, you're free to go. And they've been beaten up. I mean, they've been beaten up and mishandled. And Paul says, no, we're not going. We're not going. You send the officials that beat us up, and you bring them here, and they can escort us publicly out of the prison. Now, you see, he was beaten up. He didn't retaliate, but neither was he just a doormat. He said, wait a second, something's been done that's wrong, that's not just. I'm a Roman citizen, and so for justice sake, we're not just going to like say, oh well, we forgive you. I want it to be demonstrated that this was out of order. Okay? So there's a difference. When you, when you turn the other cheek, it, it's, it's about not personally retaliating or taking revenge. There's no personal animosity that's here, okay? And so this again, isn't it? It's not speaking about the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's speaking right into our heart. And so can you see, it's more than the, the slap in the face is an insult. And if someone slaps you in the face or someone spits at you or somebody says something out of order at you, something on the inside in your flesh rises up. You want to hit back, don't you? Maybe not hit back physically, but you want to hit back with words, or somebody did something to you at work, or somebody's done something to you in the church, and you, and you, you feel hurt, and, and you want to get your own back. You want to retaliate. You may bide your time. But in your mind, you think, right, what that person did to me, they're not going to get away with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that they pay. And there's many ways of doing that and putting a spirituality over it. But in the heart we know that what's taken place is that person did that to me. I'm going to get them back. And Jesus is saying, look, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the Pharisees would say, yeah, that's right. That's right. They did that to you and you've got every reason to do it back to them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And Jesus is saying, no. No, you, you, you must not retaliate. You must not act in revenge in any way. No personal 
animosity. And as I said, this is a powerful spiritual dream because would somebody who's pure in heart retaliate and act revenge personally? No. Would someone who was poor in spirit do that? Would somebody who was merciful, blessed of the merciful, if they were insulted or, or attacked in some way according to this principle, not law, would they strike back a merciful person? No. So can you see we are still seeing examples of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian? So whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. That is to say, what you're doing to me you're not, going to make, you're not going to make me retaliate. You're not going to make me revengeful. And you know what? That is a very powerful situation to be in where you refuse personal revenge, personal retaliation to get your own back. But then what you do is you look at the situation and what needs to be done without being driven by bitterness or anger. And then you can decide what's the appropriate response, but it's not driven by retaliation. You can see that this is heart work, isn't it? Heart work. Because you, you, could, you, could, you could pretend, oh well, I'm not doing it out of retaliation, I'm just doing it because it's important that justice is served. Really? God knows your heart. You know your heart. You have to make sure you're open-hearted in this. But you see, uh, if, if, we, if we deal on the inside with the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, and we, we want to get our own back, we've we got to deal with that and get ourselves in a place where we understand that vengeance is not ours. Who, Whose is, who's is um, vengeance? God's. Vengeance is the Lord's. Let me just find a scripture I wanted to show you. Yeah, Romans 12. Let me just read this because Paul is commenting, I think with this in mind, the Sermon on the Mount in mind, and then we'll move quickly on to the others. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Here, uh, uh, Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that a wonderful illustration of what we've just read in Matthew? The next uh, example of what it means um, to resist the evil man, to have the attitude, and all of this really is about dying to your own uh, personal sense of pride and rights. It's like, I I'm going to get my revenge. No. Die to that. The next one, uh, take your coat. Um, if someone persecutes you, it says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Well, what is this talking about? Well, in, in the law at that time, you could sue a person for their shirt 
but you couldn't sue a person for their outside coat. I think probably the mercy thing was there. You know, they need to have something around them. They need to keep warm. So you could sue somebody for their shirt. You could, and, and you hear the phrase, don't you? Take the shirt off my back. Have you ever heard that phrase? You take the shirt off my back. Comes from here. Comes from here. Take the shirt off my back. Well, give them your coat too. What, what is this speaking about? Again, let's not go crazy and become totally literalistic and just pluck it out. Because some people have said what this means is that you cannot go to court over any matter ever at any time. This is what this is talking about. And I've had Christians come to me in situations where they're saying, you know, this situation has happened, I've lost a lot of money or something's gone wrong with my house and, uh, and, and everything and, and, and the Bible says I shouldn't go to court and you know, if, if someone's robbed me and they, they have my shirt, I should give them my coat and uh, this person has, has done a terrible thing in business or whatever it is and so I guess I just let that go and, uh, and even offer them something more. Well, not necessarily. Remember, this is about spirit-filled living, by the way, and I don't want these principles to become laws. These are examples of how the Holy Spirit will lead you in different situations. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, I'm not going to go to it, but Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus teaches what to do when you have problems with people. When there's a situation, when someone wrongs you, you don't necessarily have to ignore it. You have to know the mind of the Spirit and act in love. But Matthew chapter 18, 15 and 17 says you take it to the elders and, and you take it to the correct people. But you see, you're taking it to the elders, but are you taking it to the elders to get your own back? No. No, you're not doing it out of retribution or revenge. If you take it, you're doing it out of honesty, justice, and for the right reasons. This is why, you know, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and the wrong things for the right reasons, all sorts of things here. And Jesus is speaking in terms of spirit. This, this is saying that, um, really, what this is saying is that when it comes to personal honor, can you defend your personal honor? No. But when honor and righteousness is needed to be seen, can you do that? Yes. Blessed are those who seek righteousness. But it's, it's the motivation. It's the motivation. And the motivation here, if someone sues you and takes your shirt, then your attitude should be one of, well, you know, you can have even what you're not entitled to. That type, think of the attitude more than the action. The attitude of that person is being sued for their shirt and says, well, look, you can, you can have the coat. That attitude is not one of self-right, my rights, but the attitude is one of no animosity, no bitterness, no revenge. That person is clean before the Lord, pure in their heart, and so the situation is they bear no malice, Okay? The second, the third, um, so it's not about insisting on your rights. If you insist on your rights, you are breaking what Jesus is teaching about. Because this is all about insisting on my right, what you did to me. I've been this, I've been that. This is what Jesus is speaking against. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth situation in personal, your personal relationships. The second mile. Now, what this is talking about is in those days, if, uh, if, if a soldier came 
they could insist that you carry their equipment for one mile. And what Paul is saying here is, have the attitude of somebody that would do two miles. Okay? And you, you can look at this from, from obedience to the government. When the government requires us to do something, we shouldn't moan, we should do it as much as possible. You can look at this situation when your boss says, would you, would you, I need you to work late tonight. And you go, no way. No way. I clock out when I clock out. You know the type of people that are at work? There are those that do above and beyond, aren't there? And there's those that don't even do what they're required to do. And anything, you ask them to do anything over the requirement, and it's done begrudgingly, it's done, they don't want to do it, they want extra pay, they want... Well, this speaks right into that situation, doesn't it? And we as Christians, we should be the shining ones. We, we should be the ones saying, do you need me to stay late tonight to help you, boss? See, that's the extra mile, isn't it? It's not just the boss saying, I need you to, to help me in this situation. Um, I need you to stay late tonight. Okay, but you don't, you don't just wait and say, can I go now? You do the extra mile. Now, don't take it as a law. If a, bo- if a boss is being ridiculous... Well, then you have to apply another principle, don't you? Again, none of this is about being a doormat, but it is about the right heart. And then finally, give to him who asks you. This, again, is, is about seeing the need that other people have. Not just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, like, well, I don't owe you anything. Why should I help you? You didn't help me. If you help me, you scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. Isn't that eye for eye and a tooth for a tooth in an inverted way, isn't it? You know, well, you help me, I'll help you. Well, that, this is saying, you know, be in a situation where you don't just give people what they deserve. Be of a generous disposition. It's not talking about somebody that comes up to you who's blind drunk and says, in the, you know, in an evening and says, oh, uh, could you give me 10 pounds for food? You know what they're going to do with that 10 pounds. Now, if you give it or not, that's up to you, but you, you, you're not bound to give. Or someone that comes up to you and you, you know that they're charlatan or, or something, and you, and you just know that the money's abused, that the, that the need isn't real. You are not bound by this to give to anybody that gives to you. But your heart should be one of meeting needs, of situations where you don't have to give. You know, when you walk past... The charity people, you don't have to give, but why don't you? Why don't you? Well, I, you know, it's the heart. So as we close today, and we're very soon going to be in chapter 6, we've got one more week on this, and then we're in chapter 6, none of this can be done in our own strength. It can only be done by walking with the Father. So, Lord, I'm not going to take my revenge, but Father, I trust and pray that you look after all this. Lord, I'm going to put these things into operation. I'm not going to seek my own. I'm going to seek yours because I know, Father, you know every hair on my head. You look after me. I can be free to live free like this in love because I'm walking with my Father. And the whole of chapter 6 is how you can do this because your Father's with you and you will succeed every time. Well, we're going to close right now because uh, we're going to get ready for our our, uh, graduation uh, service. God bless you all.